0: Section 11 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andrew Coleman. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 11. While we are on this subject, my readers may not be displeased with another anecdote, communicated to me by the same friend, from the relation of Mr Hogarth. Johnson used to be a pretty frequent visitor at the house of Mr Richardson, author of Clarissa and other novels of extensive reputation. Mr Hogarth came one day to see Richardson, soon after the execution of Dr Cameron, for having taken arms for the house of Stuart in 1745-6, to and being a warm partisan of George the Second, he observed to Richardson that certainly there must have been some very unfavourable circumstances lately discovered in this particular case which had induced the king to approve of an execution for rebellion so long after the time when it was committed, as this had the appearance of putting a man to death in cold blood, and was very unlike His Majesty's usual clemency. While he was talking, he perceived a person standing at a window in the room, shaking his head and rolling himself about in a strange, ridiculous manner. He concluded that he was an idiot, whom his relations had put under the care of Mr. Richardson as a very good man. To his great surprise, however, this figure stalked forwards to where he and Mr. Richardson were sitting, and all at once took up the argument and burst out into an invective against George the second as one who upon all occasions was unrelenting and barbarous mentioning many instances particularly that when an officer of high rank had been acquitted by a court martial George the second had with his own hand struck his name off the list in short he displayed such a power of eloquence that hogarth looked at him with astonishment and actually imagined that this idiot had been at the moment inspired. Neither Hogarth nor Johnson were made known to each other at this interview. Note. Impartial posterity may perhaps be as little inclined as Dr Johnson was to justify the uncommon rigour exercised in the case of Dr Archibald Cameron. He was an amiable and truly honest man and his offence was owing to a generous, though mistaken, principle of duty. Being obliged, after 1746, to give up his profession as a physician, and to go into foreign parts, he was honoured with the rank of Colonel, both in the French and Spanish service. He was a son of the ancient and respectable family of Cameron, of Lochiel, and his brother, who was the chief of that brave clan, distinguished himself by moderation and humanity, while the Highland army marched victorious through Scotland. It is remarkable of this chief, that though he had earnestly remonstrated against the attempt as hopeless, he was of too heroic a spirit not to venture his life and fortune in the cause, when personally asked by him whom he thought his prince. End of note. 1740. Itat. 31. 31. In 1740, he wrote for the Gentleman's Magazine the preface, Life of Sir Francis Drake, and the first parts of those of Admiral Blake and of Philip Baratier, both of which he finished the following year. He also wrote an Essay on Epitaphs, and an Epitaph on Philip's Musician, which was afterwards published, with some other pieces of his, in Mrs. William's Miscellanies. This epitaph is so exquisitely beautiful, that I remember even Lord Kames, strangely prejudiced as he was against Dr. Johnson, was compelled to allow it very high praise. It has been ascribed to Mr. Garrick from its appearing at first with the signature G, but I have heard Mr. Garrick declare that it was written by Dr. Johnson, and give the following account of the manner in which it was composed, johnson and he were sitting together when amongst other things garrick repeated an epitaph upon this phillips by a dr wilkes in these words exalted soul whose harmony could please the love-sick virgin and the gouty ease could jarring discord like amphion move to beauteous order and harmonious love rest here in peace till angels bid thee rise and meet thy blessed Saviour in the skies. Johnson shook his head at these commonplace funereal lines, and said to Garrick, I think, Davy, I can make a better. Then, stirring about his tea for a little while in a state of meditation, he almost extempore produced the following verses Philips, whose touch harmonious could remove the pangs of guilty power or hapless love. Rest here, distressed by poverty no more, Here find that calm thou gavest so oft before. Sleep, undisturbed, within this peaceful shrine, Till angels wake thee with a note like thine. At the same time that Mr. Garrick favoured me with this anecdote, he repeated a very pointed epigram by Johnson on George II and Colley Kibber which has never yet appeared, and of which I know not the exact date. Dr. Johnson afterwards gave it to me himself. Augustus still survives in marrow's strain, and Spencer's verse prolongs Eliza's reign. Great George's acts let tuneful kibber sink, for nature formed the poet for the king. In 1741 he wrote for the gentleman's magazine the preface, Conclusion of his Lives of Drake and Baratier, a free translation of the jests of Heracles with an introduction, and, I think, the following pieces. Debate on the proposal of Parliament to Cromwell to assume the title of king, abridged, modified and digested. Translation of Abbé Guillon's dissertation on the Amazons. Translation of Fontenelle's panegyric on Dr. Morin. Two notes upon this appear to me undoubtedly his. He this year, and the two following, wrote the parliamentary debates. He told me himself that he was the sole composer of them for those three years only. It was not, however, precisely exact in his statement, which he mentioned from hasty recollection, for it is sufficiently evident that his composition of them began November 19th, 1740, and ended February 23rd, 1742-3. It appears from some of Cave's letters to Dr. Birch that Cave had better assistance for that branch of his magazine than has been generally supposed, and that he was indefatigable in getting it made as perfect as he could. Thus, 21st July, 1735. I trouble you with the enclosed because you said you could easily correct what is here given for Lord C.'s speech. I beg you will do so as soon as you can for me, because the month is far advanced. And 15th July, 1737. As you remember the debate so far as to perceive the speeches already printed are not exact, I beg the favour that you will peruse the enclosed, and, in the best manner your memory will serve, correct the mistaken passages, or add anything that is omitted, I should be very glad to have something of the Duke of End's speech, which would be particularly of service. A gentleman has Lord Bathurst's speech to add something to. At July 3rd, 1744, you will see what stupid, low, abominable stuff is put upon your noble and learned friend's character, such as I should quite reject "'and endeavour to do something better towards doing justice to the character. "'But as I cannot expect to attain my desires in that respect, "'it would be a great satisfaction, as well as an honour to our work, "'to have the favour of the genuine speech. "'It is a method that several have been pleased to take, as I could show, "'but I think myself under a restraint. "'I shall say so far that I have had some by a third hand, "'which I understood well enough to come from the first others by Penny Post and others by the speakers themselves who have been pleased to visit St John's Gate and show particular marks of their being pleased. There is no reason, I believe, to doubt the veracity of Cave. It is, however, remarkable that none of these letters are in the years during which Johnson alone furnished the debates, and one of them is in the very year after he ceased from that labour. Johnson told me that as soon as he found that the speeches were thought genuine, he determined that he would write no more of them, for he would not be accessory to the propagation of falsehood. And such was the tenderness of his conscience that a short time before his death he expressed his regret for his having been the author of fictions, which had passed for realities.' He nevertheless agreed with me in thinking that the debates which he had framed were to be valued as orations upon questions of public importance. They have accordingly been collected in volumes, properly arranged, and recommended to the notice of parliamentary speakers by a preface, written by no inferior hand. I must, however, observe that although there is in those debates a wonderful store of political information, and very powerful eloquence, I cannot agree that they exhibit the manner of each particular speaker, as Sir John Hawkins seems to think. But indeed, what opinion can we have of his judgment and taste in public speaking, who presumes to give, as the characteristics of two celebrated orators, the deep-mouthed rancour of Pulteney and the yelping pertinacity of Pitt? This year I find that his tragedy of Irene, had been for some time ready for the stage, and that his necessities made him desirous of getting as much as he could for it without delay. For there is the following letter from Mr Cave to Dr Birch, in the same volume of manuscripts in the British Museum, from which I copied those above quoted. They were most obligingly pointed out to me by Sir William Musgrave, one of the curators of that noble repository. September 9th, 1741. I have put Mr. Johnson's play into Mr. Grey's hands, in order to sell it to him, if he is inclined to buy it. But I doubt whether he will or not. He would dispose of the copy, and whatever advantage may be made by acting it. Would your society, or any gentleman, or body of men that you know, take such a bargain? He and I are very unfit to deal with theatrical persons. Fleetwood was to have acted it last season, But Johnson's diffidence or prevented it. I have already mentioned that Irene was not brought into public notice till Garrick was manager of Drury Lane Theatre. Seventeen forty-two, i t thirty-three. In seventeen forty-two, he wrote for the Gentleman's Magazine the preface, the Parliamentary debates, essay on the account of the conduct of the Duchess of Marlborough. Than the popular topic of conversation. This essay is a short but masterly performance. We find him in number 13 of his Rambler censuring a profligate sentiment in that account and again insisting upon it strenuously in conversation. An account of the life of Peter Berman? I believe chiefly taken from a foreign publication as indeed he could not himself know much about Berman additions to his life of Baratheer, the life of Sydenham, afterwards prefixed to Dr Swan's edition of his works, proposals for printing Bibliotheca Halleiana, or a catalogue of the Library of the Earl of Oxford. His account of that celebrated collection of books, in which he displays the importance to literature of what the French call a catalogue raisonné, when the subjects of it are extensive and various, and it is executed with ability, cannot fail to impress all his readers with admiration of his philological attainments. It was afterwards prefixed to the first volume of the catalogue, in which the Latin accounts of books were written by him. He was employed in this business by Mr Thomas Osborne, the bookseller, who purchased the library for £13,000, a sum which Mr Aldis says in one of his manuscripts was not more than the binding of the books had cost. Yet, as Dr. Johnson assured me, the slowness of the sale was such that there was not much gained by it. It has been confidently related, with many embellishments, that Johnson one day knocked Osborne down in his shop with a folio, and put his foot upon his neck. The simple truth I had from Johnson himself. Sir, he was impertinent to me, and I beat him. But it was not in his shop. It was in my own chamber.' a very diligent observer may trace him where we should not easily suppose him to be found i have no doubt that he wrote the little abridgment entitled foreign history in the magazine for december to prove it i shall quote the introduction as this is that season of the year in which nature may be said to command a suspension of hostilities and which seems intended by putting a short stop to violence and slaughter to afford time for malice to relent, and animosity to subside. We can scarce expect any other accounts than of plans, negotiations and treaties, of proposals for peace, and preparations for war. As also this passage, let those who despise the capacity of the Swiss tell us by what wonderful policy, or by what happy conciliation of interests, it is brought to pass, that in a body made up of different communities and different religions there should be no civil commotions, though the people are so warlike that to nominate and raise an army is the same. I am obliged to Mr Astor for his ready permission to copy the two following letters, of which the originals are in his possession. Their contents show that they were written about this time, and that Johnson was now engaged in preparing an historical account of the British Parliament. To Mr Cave. No date. Sir, I believe I am going to write a long letter, and have therefore taken a whole sheet of paper. The first thing to be written about is our historical design. You mentioned the proposal of printing in numbers as an alteration in the scheme, but I believe you mistook, some way or other, my meaning. I had no other view than that you might rather print too many of five sheets than of five and thirty. With regard to what I shall say on the manner of proceeding, I would have it understood as wholly indifferent to me, and my opinion only, not my resolution. Emptoris sit eligere. I think the insertion of the exact dates of the most important events in the margin, or of so many events as may enable the reader to regulate the order of facts with sufficient exactness, the proper medium between a journal, which has regard only to time, and a history, which ranges facts according to their dependence on each other, and postpones or anticipates according to the convenience of narration, I think the work, or to partake of the spirit of history, which is contrary to minute exactness, and of the regularity of a journal, which is inconsistent with spirit. For this reason I neither admit numbers or dates, nor reject them. I am of your opinion with regard to placing most of the resolutions, etc., in the margin, and think we shall give the most complete account of parliamentary proceedings that can be contrived, the naked papers, without an historical treatise interwoven, require some other book to make them understood. I will date the succeeding facts with some exactness, but I think in the margin. You told me on Saturday that I had received money on this work, and found set down thirteen pounds, two shillings, and sixpence, reckoning the half-guinea of last Saturday.' As you hinted to me that you had many calls for money, I would not press you too hard, and therefore shall desire only, as I send it in, two guineas for a sheet of copy. The rest you may pay me when it may be more convenient, and even by this sheet payment I shall for some time be very expensive. The life of savage I am ready to go upon, and in Greek primer and pica notes I reckon on sending in half a sheet a day. But the money for that shall likewise lie by in your hands till it is done. With the debates shall not I have business enough, if I had but good pens. Towards Mr. Savage's life, what more have you got? I would willingly have his trial, etc., and know whether his defence be at Bristol, and would have his collection of poems on account of the preface, the plain dealer, all the magazines that have anything of his or relating to him. I thought my letter would be long, but it is now ended. And I am, sir, yours, etc., Sam Johnson. The boy found me writing this almost in the dark, when I could not quite easily read yours. I have read the Italian. Nothing in it is well. I had no notion of having anything for the inscription. I hope you don't think I kept it to extort a price. I could think of nothing till today.' "'If you could spare me another guinea for the history, "'I should take it very kindly to-night. "'But if you do not, I shall not think it an injury. "'I am almost well again.' "'To Mr. Cave. "'Sir, you did not tell me your determination "'about the soldier's letter, which I am confident was never printed. "'I think it will not do by itself, or in any other place, "'so well as the mag-extraordinary.' If you will have it at all, I believe you do not think I set it high, and I will be glad if what you give, you will give quickly. You need not be in care about something to print, for I have got the state trials, and shall extract Lair, Atterbury, and Macclesfield from them, and shall bring them to you in a fortnight, after which I will try to get the South Sea report. No date nor signature. I would also ascribe to him an... Essay on the Description of China, from the French of Duhoud His writings in the Gentleman's Magazine in 1743 are the Preface, the Parliamentary Debates, Considerations on the Dispute between Crusas and Warburton, on Pope's Essay on Man, in which while he defends Crusas he shows an admirable metaphysical acuteness and temperance in controversy, Ad Loram Paritorum Epigramma, and a latin translation of pope's verses on his grotto and as he could employ his pen with equal success upon a small matter as a great, i suppose him to be the author of an advertisement for osborne concerning the great halcyon catalogue but i should think myself much wanting both to my illustrious friend and my readers did i not introduce here with more than ordinary respect an exquisitely beautiful ode, which has not been inserted in any of the collections of Johnson's poetry, written by him at a very early period, as Mr Hector informs me, and inserted in the Gentleman's Magazine of this year. Friendship, an ode. Friendship, peculiar boon of heaven, the noble mind's delight and pride to men and angels only given, to all the lower world denied. While love, unknown among the blessed, parent of thousand wild desires, the savage and the human breast torments alike with raging fires. With bright but oft destructive gleam, alike o'er all his lightnings fly, thy lampant glories only beam around the favourites of the sky. Thy gentle flows of guiltless joys On fools and villains ne'er descend, In vain for thee the tyrant sighs, And hugs a flatterer for a friend. Directress of the brave and just, O guide us through life's darksome way, And let the tortures of mistrust On selfish bosoms only prey. Nor shall thine ardours cease to glow, When souls to blissful climes remove, What raised our virtue here below Shall aid our happiness above. End of section 11